Before we begin this morning, let me just say a couple of things by way of introduction. First of all, it's my great delight to be with you this morning. Uh, My wife and I and our four children are with us this morning. Um, One of them, I believe, is crying in the nursery as we speak. Um, But delighted to be with you, to worship with you on this Lord's Day. Delighted for the opportunity to serve this uh, great body. Uh, We actually, uh, Emily's parents, my wife's parents, have a place in Bay St. Louis. And we got to come down a couple of days early and enjoy some time uh, with the family. And uh, so it's been a blessing. Um, And so we're grateful to be here the second uh, introduction by way of introduction just to say is we did come down and I was prepared to be here this morning and prepared to faithfully just didn't prepare one minor detail. I uh, did not prepare that there was no printer at my in-laws uh, place. And so I am preaching from a little contraption up here. So I want to apologize. I feel a little embarrassed using technology on the pulpit. I need paper and pen. And so y'all forgive me if it shuts down. We're in real trouble. So we are completely dependent upon technology this morning. But uh, by way of by, that, by way of introduction, let me invite you to turn to Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter 14. And we're going to actually read verses one through 14. What I'd ask, like to ask you to do is if you would stand as we read the word of God this morning, Hebrews tells us that it is the living and active word of God. We believe that the Lord is speaking through his word is speaking living and active words. We So I want him to set aside this time, the reading of his word, that he would set me aside, that he would set you aside, and that he would speak through his word this morning. So I ask you to stand in reverence for his word this morning. Luke 14, verses 1 through 14, would you follow along with me? One Sabbath, when Jesus went to meet, to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisee and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had and they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guest picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may be invited. And if so, the host who invited both both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the, at the resurrection of the righteous. Thank you. You can be seated. So we come to the text this morning. Uh, it's easy to miss um, the, the striking nature of this text. It's easy enough to miss um, how kind of audacious, some immediate red flags that should jump off the page at us, but if we're not familiar with the context of the passage, we might miss it. Jesus is coming into the home of a prominent Pharisee to have dinner with him. That seems uh, harmless enough, but if you've read just a few 
chapters earlier, you understand that uh, Jesus has just called the Pharisees hypocrites, murderers, heretics, and whitewashed tombs. And it seems a bit audacious that he is now going to dine with them in their homes. It would be some, something on par with the, if this morning I came and I wanted to preach a sermon on the evils of Islam. And uh, this morning for Sunday school, your Sunday school teachers had been walking through a series of discussions on the evils of the heresy of Islam and the dangers of it in our world around us. And then right after this, um, I, you saw me um, going into the home of a prominent, uh, several prominent members of Al-Qaeda and having lunch with them this afternoon. It would really be that audacious. In a sense, we've just talked about the, the evil nature of what they are, of, what, of the belief system itself, of what they are and what they represent, and yet here we are now going to fellowship, to hang out with them. And if you miss that, you'll miss the nature of what Jesus has come to do in the text this morning. He is coming to dine with these men. And when you read it, they, they, he comes into the home, and now he's going to sit down with them over some casserole and sweet tea. And, and just fellowship with them. It's a, it's a bit audacious if you understand the context that we find ourselves in. In Greco-Roman times, if somebody brought you into their home and invited you, especially prominent men, members of society, they were doing so to honor you, to, to set you apart and to, to demonstrate to you their respect and honor of you in the culture around you. It would have been an honor for you to be invited, and it was also something for them to set you apart and to set themselves apart as those Honored in that moment. So it's also kind of curious that the Pharisees who had been seeking to overthrow Jesus and to supplant his this movement that had been rising up because of Jesus's miracles throughout the book of Luke. They're inviting him to his home. It's, it's actually a, a confusing situation. We find ourselves in here uh, here in Luke chapter 14. But if you read the text closely, you understand that the real motive of this meeting is actually set apart. It says in the very first verse that the Pharisees invited him to their home for dinner and they were watching him carefully. It seems plain as day that they were watching him because their intention was to trap Jesus. They had not invited him to honor him or to demonstrate their respect for him, but to see to, to set a trap for him. What a better place to do that than to invite him into a house uh, in a place of honor and then to call him out in that, to trap him in his beliefs and in his understanding in that place of honor. What, how great would the fall be indeed if he was to fall from that place of honor that day? But Jesus understood exactly what was going on, didn't he? Jesus responds to their actions by, by asking them a question. And you say he's not responding to anything. Jesus hasn't been asked anything. They've not actually said anything to him. They're just watching him as he enters the place and as he enters in. But he knows exactly what's going on. So he's responding to their motives and their hard actions and what they're there uh, imposing upon him and his showing up that day. He responds to them by asking them a question. How does Jesus respond? What is his response to them? Well, he poses some questions to them. He cuts to the quick of the issue. He doesn't mince words. Yes, he could have been frustrated over the fact that they had invited him for that reason, knowing what they had brought him there for. He could have challenged them for their motives in bringing him there. He could have gotten frustrated and stormed out. He could have done any host of things. But no, Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter, the heart of the issue, and begins addressing the heart. And I think there's three things that he sets before us this morning in Luke chapter 14. He means this morning in asking and addressing the questions before the folks who were gathered in the home of this prominent Pharisee means to address three basic issues concerning the gospel. First of all, 
It's, he, he means to address the hard heart that needs the gospel. Second, he means to address the humble heart that expresses the gospel. And lastly, he wants to address the issue that, concerning the hospitable heart that spreads the gospel. That's what we want to look at this morning. I think they're very clear in Jesus' motives and how he's addressing the people here in this home of this prominent Pharisee. One, he means to address the hardness of the hearts of all who were present there that day. He wants to talk about the, the humility that needs to be expressed in their heart, opposed to their hardness. And he wants to talk to them concerning the hospitality that their heart demonstrates in the spread of the gospel. So let's look quickly at that this morning. The hard heart in need of the gospel. Jesus' discernment um, over what's going on uh, as he shows up at this prominent, uh, the home of this prominent Pharisee seems very clear on the outset. He seems to be able to discern very quickly what's going on, but I don't know that his... Discernment is all that difficult to see. I think it's really a universal condition, isn't it? The, the nature in which we seem to defend and to guard our own rights and our own ways is a universal problem. Jesus doesn't, is actually not all that overwhelmingly wise. He just understands the human condition, doesn't he? And so when he begins to address these questions, he's addressing a crowd much larger than these Pharisees. But even us this morning, he asks two questions and providing a couple of solutions concerning the hardness of their heart. First, he asked this question, basically, are you building or guarding your reputation, or are you pursuing holiness? Are you building and guarding your reputation, or are you pursuing holiness? He asked that when he asked the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He presents that question to the Pharisees, and they've really only got two options to answer. Only two ways they can answer that question. They can look up and say, no, it's not lawful. They can look to the law and the, 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 the extra laws that they've added to the Old Testament law, and they can look up and say, no, it's not lawful. We've made a list of laws. We've set forth what is required, and no, it's not lawful. And in so doing, they will seem very uncompassionate, unloving, and unsympathetic. Well, they can't do that, can they? They can't stand in a room with this man suffering from dropsy. Dropsy would have been accumulation of fluid in the body that would have caused this man to be in, in, in massive swelling. It would have been very noticeable in his, in his very physical uh, stature. It would have been very noticeable. His swelling would have been really bad. A lot of fluid throughout his body could have been caused from any host of things, um, uh, illness affecting his ki- uh, kidneys, liver, blood, or heart, or any combination of all of those. But there would have been a swelling. It would have been very painful. There would have been a real sense in which you could have seen the very real distress on his body and on his face. So for them to look up and go, no, it's not lawful, would have been very uncompassionate and unloving. So they were stuck, weren't they? So the other answer, the other option for them was to answer the question by implicitly agreeing with the man who was gaining reputation, the man who they had brought there for the purpose of campaigning against him to have him arrested and ultimately murdered. Well, they couldn't do that either, could they? Jesus had trapped him, if you will. He, he, the Pharisees showed up um, brought a knife to a gunfight, if you will. He, he, they show up and they're just not prepared for what Jesus has set before them, these two options. See, there was no room for thoughts concerning the needs of this man. There was no room in the hearts of the Pharisees to consider, even consider Jesus' question. And there was ultimately, this is ultimately not even about the law. At the end of the day, as he's... As Jesus is addressing the question to them, they had no ability to to perceive the question being asked, the man who was suffering, or even to deal with the law itself. They were struggling and consumed with 
simply guarding their reputation, simply protecting their stance, protecting their position, protecting what they thought was absolutely necessary for them. That's not all that unlikely for us, is it? That's not something we can't relate to. I deal with a lot of counseling. I deal with the bulk of the counseling load at Madison Heights in Madison, Mississippi. And as I deal with uh, married couples on a regular basis, and as I think about my own marriage, how often uh, do we uh, find ourselves in arguments and, and discussions that we don't necessarily feel all that convicted about or even... Um, or even believe all that, all that convicted about or even believe the thing we're arguing about. Rather, we just we feel like if we give in, we're, we're giving in something bigger, or we're afraid of the implications if we look up and say, you know what, I'm wrong. Well, that means that everything I've been saying before now is wrong. And that means if I, if I admit to this fault, then she's going to assume that I'm incapable to lead or or maybe we're just guarding the bigger issue, but we're going to fight this little battle. I might be wrong, but I'm really worried about... We've got a host of issues, a host of reasons. When I'm counseling people, when I deal with the struggles of my own marriage, and I find if we really look at our hearts, what we are doing is guarding our own reputation, guarding our own position, our own issues. What about mercy ministry and opportunities to serve in the church? How often do we find ourselves when asked to serve, asked to give, asked to go, and to serve the community around us or to give of our time, we find ourselves quickly looking up going, well, we, we don't have enough time. I mean, I'm, I, mean, we, I mean, I do a, a lot of things. I mean, I give to the church and I'm, I'm there every Sunday. And we, we begin walking through our excuses and we've been guarding, begin guarding what is really at the heart of our issue, which is we don't want to be out of our comfort zone. We don't want to walk into a room with people we don't know, people who are suffering and struggling and try to relate to them. We are afraid of the implications of what that will require of us. And so we make a lot of excuses and we begin guarding our own reputation, our own understanding, our own position on the issue. See, we are a people who love to propagate our own cause at all costs. The human condition is a universal one. And Jesus is setting forth in this picture, as he is dealing with these prominent Pharisees, a, a condition of the human heart that we've just sung about when we said when sin was black as could be, he came. The issue is we are constantly guarding our own way. The second question he presents, are you pursuing selfish gain and ambition instead of wholly leaning on the righteousness of Christ alone for salvation? Let me say that again. Are you pursuing selfish gain and ambition instead of wholly leaning on the righteousness of Christ alone for salvation? I don't, I don't really see that in the text. How do, you, how do you see him asking that question? Well, he asked him the question, how many of you, if your son or ox was in a well, had fallen into a well, wouldn't immediately stop what you were doing on the Sabbath and, and retrieve it and to, to save it and to pull it out? How many of y'all would not do that? See, Jesus has basically pointed to the wound that is the sin of our hearts in the first question, but now he's got his finger on the wound and he's pressing in a little bit harder. He wants us to understand that through the actions that the Pharisees were demonstrating, um, by the way they were asking the questions and the way they were living their lives, they were demonstrating the self-preserving or nature of their hearts. I think we demonstrate the self-preserving nature of our own hearts and our own actions. They would sooner allow a man to writhe in pain in their living room and ultimately potentially die from this illness than they would allow an ox to die in a well and risk the loss of their own livelihood. A picture of an ox is going to be a very prominent means by which they would make their income. It would have been a very expensive item. It would have been something that would allow them to, 
to continue in their well-being and their livelihood. And so to lose that ox was to lose their livelihood. They would guard their own livelihood against the needs and of this man who was suffering from dropsy. And he was trying to point to them that you were more concerned with guarding your own reputation. You were more concerned with your own selfish gain than you are the righteousness of Christ alone in your hearts. We are too often willing to play the game of Russian roulette, uh, spiritually play the game of Russian roulette with our hearts, trying to, 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 to do just enough to get by, trying to, to achieve enough to where we feel like we've accomplished enough to be accepted by Christ and accepted by those around us as a good moral person. We're, we're constantly playing that game thinking if we do enough, if we, do, if we get by just enough, and we don't really want to ask the question that Jesus asked Peter, do we? We don't want to really deal with the implications of the answer to the question, who do you say that I am? Jesus looks at Peter, and it's not a simple question, who do you say that I am? It's not just Christ, the Son of the living God. It's if you say who I am and if you declare who I am, Christ the Lord, then you've got to deal with the implications of that. And we don't want to deal with the implications of asking the question, answering the question, who do you say that I am? So let me ask you a question this morning. If I were to ask you this morning, are you pursuing Christ? Are you pursuing holiness in every area of your life? This morning, what would your answer be? Just, just think about it for a second. Let's just stop. Just think for a minute. Are you pursuing Christ? Are you pursuing holiness in every area of your life? I'm not talking about the perfection of your life. I'm not asking, I'm not asking for perfection. Christ doesn't ask for perfection in the sense that He does say, "Be holy as I am holy," but He's not looking for absolute perfection, but the direction of your life in the pursuit of that perfection. Is that what your life would be marked by this morning as you gather here? As you started to answer that question, what came to your mind? What were the first thoughts that came to your mind? Did you start running through the list? Well, I mean, I do this and I do that and I come to church and I tithe mostly regularly. And um, I try to be at the events and different things. I sing in the choir. Um, I participate in seasonal things. I'm here most of the time. The doors are open. I serve in the nursery. I, I try to do as much as I can. Do you, do you run through the list? Or is the immediate thought that came to your mind a sense of guilt? I really do need to be doing more. Man, I need to, you know, I really didn't tithe. Or I really haven't given of my time. I really probably should buy a couple of poinsettias to help Palmer home. Or I, I really should do something. And you start feeling the guilt and you start trying to make a list. Well, if you weren't doing the list, now I'm going to make a list to get it done. Maybe you're just frustrated that I'm asking the question. Maybe when you ask the question, you look up going, I mean, all right, I got it. Let's move to the next point. You're frustrating me a little bit. You're stepping on toes, or, or maybe I just don't like the nature of the question. Maybe it's not fair how you're asking it. Well, if we are to follow Jesus, if we are to pursue holiness the way Jesus seems to be addressing the issue in our hearts this morning, and it's not what we do or what we are not doing, but it's what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing. We've got to see and understand that the hardness of our heart is we would go our own way, time without number. We would have our way. We would shake our fists in the face of God and say, I will not have this king to rule over me. 
over and over again unless Jesus intercedes on our behalf, unless Jesus opens our eyes, unless Jesus works in our hearts, there is no hope. Jerry Bridges was very helpful to me on this point early in my walk with Christ. I was reading his book, The Disciplines of Grace, and he said this, to preach the gospel to yourself then means that you would continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in His shed blood and righteous life. It means that you appropriate again by faith the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God, that He is your sin substitute, and that God's holy wrath is no longer directed towards you. This is the gospel by which we are saved. And it is the gospel by which we must live every day of our Christian lives. If you are not firmly rooted in the gospel and have not learned to preach it to yourself every day, you will soon become discouraged and will slack off in your pursuit of holiness. You will become discouraged because you will never feel like you're measuring up. You will slack off because you're just tired of trying and never really getting where you want to be. But if you constantly, day in and day out of every day of your lives, look to Christ and say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. If you will lay your lives before Him and say, Christ and Christ alone, On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. If that will become the testimony of your lives, then you will find that selfish ambition has no place. Guarding our own heart's desires have no place. Because you have wholly fixed your gaze upon the One who alone is worthy. It's a hard heart that is in need of the Gospel. And we've got to recognize the hardness of our hearts and preach the Gospel to ourselves. But what does that look like? If, if, we, if we want to understand, I got, I got it, we've got hard hearts, there's a sin issue, we need Christ to deal with that sin issue. So what does this look like? What is the expression of this Gospel at work in our hard hearts? Well, Jesus wants to address that. He wants to take you a step further. He's revealed the problem, He's pointed to it, and He says, alright, well, if humility has come in, If the gospel has begun to take root in your life, there will be a humility that begins to express itself through the gospel. He deals with this second parable, talking about the folks entering into the wedding feast. They've come in to sit at the table, and some of them are taking prominent seats right off the bat. And he begins to address the expression of the gospel, how it should express itself in our lives by pointing to the manner and nature in which people walking into this wedding feast address the way they're going to sit. He, he points to a picture, a very real picture in Greco-Roman culture of... It's a, real, it's a real important picture that you see when he starts talking about the issue of the host and a wedding feast and all that surrounds that. And so here's, what, here's, a, here's a thesis statement. Here's the picture of what he's trying to point at as he's pointing to the wedding feast. It's simply this, what the heart loves... The heart pursues, but the host determines the seating. Listen to that, because we're going to explain that in the nature of the analogy that he's setting forth. What the heart loves, the heart pursues, but it's the host who determines the seating. See, the host is actually the, the, the central figure in this second parable. It's really about the host. We would focus upon the individuals who are taking prominent seats or lesser seats in the room, but it's the host who is central. It's a subtle fact easily overlooked in this passage that the host is the one who determines the seating. Jesus doesn't think it is all that subtle since he references the host as the one who invites. He's the one who sets the seating chart and he's the one who judges those who are out of place from the seating. 
It's very important that we see that Jesus' point is that if the heart has been broken, if the heart has begun to seen its own hardness and its pursuit of its own selfish gain, if, if, it's, if it's begun preaching the gospel to itself every day, it will understand its need to take the lower seat. It will be this humility that God exalts. It will be this testimony of an understanding. It's, it's not that you have achieved humility, Jesus says. It's, it's not that, hey, you've achieved humility. Go sit in the lower seat and, and wait. Or he's going to ask me to go in the higher seat. You're not just, it's not a false humility. It's that when humility is really taken root in your heart, you understand and, and, and Jesus has been written all over your heart so much that you are going to take the lowest seat in the room because you know that Christ is the one who's to be exalted. You want Him to receive the glory. I want to be here because I want Him to receive the glory and the honor and I'm just happy to be in the room. Just happy to be in the room. I think that's the picture of that seat of honor. He says that the seat of honor is determined by the host. The one who gains the honor, who gets the honor, is the host. He is the central figure. The one who has genuinely understood the invitation to come and to feast with the host, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is the one who walks into the room and says, I'm going to sit right here because I'm just happy to be in the room. I don't need any seat except a seat at the end because I'm just amazed that I got an invitation to begin with. Jesus is trying to point to that. We see that throughout the Old and New Testament, don't we? We see it time and time again in pictures of men of the Old Testament. Moses in Exodus 3.11 says, Who am I that I should bring my people out of Egypt? Who am I? I'm stuttering. I'm a broken man. I'm not even worthy to fulfill this calling on my, that you have set over me. Job in chapter 40 of the book of Job, the man whose righteousness there is, like, there is no other who is to compare with his righteousness, says, I am vile. I lay my hand over my mouth. I don't even want to speak because I'm vile. And he is considered to be the most righteous man of his day. There is a humility demonstrated in King David in 51, 3 through 4. He says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and unwanted is unrighteous in your sight. We see it also in Paul in 1 Timothy 4.15 when he says, Christ Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the chief among them. But we see it even in Christ Himself, don't we? Who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But He gave up His seat of honor, and He made Himself nothing. And He came as a lowly servant, taking on the form of man, and He suffered the pains and the realities of walking the road to Calvary so that we might be exalted. So as Romans 8 tells us, that we might be declared heirs of the kingdom of God and joint heirs with Jesus that we could call the Son of Man our brother and the living God our Father. Jesus is pointing to us the reality that if the gospel has taken shape in your life, if, 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 if you have recognized the hardness of your heart and your desperate need of the gospel, and if you've begun preaching the gospel to yourselves every day, saying, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, the expression of that's going to be, I'm just happy to be at the table, Lord. I'm so thankful that you would save me. I'm unworthy of this reality. Lord, work in me. Challenge and change me. And if you would, Lord, maybe even use me. He's talking about a heart that expresses the work of the gospel in your heart as one of humility. 
The last thing he points to real quick is if the, if the hard heart has been changed by the gospel, it's going to express itself in gospel humility and it's going to ultimately seek to demonstrate itself in a hospitable heart that longs to spread the gospel. How do you see that? Where do you see that? Well, the last thing he says to him is, hey, listen, don't invite your friends and your family and your loved ones and your rich neighbors. Go invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the broken, the downtrodden. Invite them. I've got to admit, it's, it's funny when I, when I come to this text and read it. If I'm Jesus, <laughs> I'm zinging them when I walk in the room. If I know what they're there doing, if I understand that they've brought me there just to make a public spectacle of me, I'm going to look at them because I understand Greco-Roman culture, don't I? I understand that what they've done is invited me to a position of honor, and now they seek to dishonor me. So I'm going to look at them. I say, what kind of host are you? I'm going to walk in. I'm a little bit, i got a little bit of pride in me. So I'm going to walk in, and I'm going to say, what kind of host are you? That you're going to invite me just to discredit me in front of all these people. Why don't you give a defense for yourself instead of putting me on trial? Why don't we talk about the very nature of why you brought me into this place? I'm going to zing them. I'm going to come right at them. And, and maybe in doing so, I can discredit them. Maybe I can actually point even further to the hypocrisy that is their lifestyle, that is the reality of their false gospel. Maybe I can show them for the sinful individuals that they are. That's not what Jesus does. No, Jesus keeps his arrow focused directly on the heart. And he's saying that if their hearts were in the right place, if their hearts were in the right place, if, there was not, if they were not demonstrating a, hard, a heart of, of hardness, and if they were demonstrating gospel humility, they wouldn't even be in the place they were at that day. Because you know why? They would have been inviting the poor, the crippled and lame. They would have been seeking to spread the gospel rather than to guard their own reputation. And I think that's important for us to understand this morning. That if we're going to understand the, the reality and the nature of the hardness of our heart, if we're going to understand and begin asking questions concerning the, the fruit of humility that is born in the gospel's work in our lives, then we're going to have to start asking the question, how are we expressing that in the manner that we reach out into the world and spread this news, this glorious news that there has been one that's invited me to the feast and he's inviting you to come feast with him. Feast, there are tables prepared, a place prepared for you. And He's invited you to come, but we don't. Jesus chooses the venue of hospitality, though, to stress the importance of evangelism, the importance of gospel witness. The Scriptures are filled with references to the necessity of hospitality as a means of reaching the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. But we, it's funny that we don't seem to see hospitality that way, do we? We don't see hospitality the way Jesus is portraying it here in Luke 14. It's actually just it's too tempting to deal with the Greek word that's being presented here for hospitality in the, here. It's, he actually uses the Greek word, if you'll permit me to help you with this one a little bit. I don't usually like walking through Greek because I'm not even good at it myself. But um, for kicks and giggles, the word here is just too tempting not to deal with it. The actual word here in Greek is philoxenia. Uh, it's two compound words making up one, uh, one word. I mean, two individual words making one compound word. It, it's the, the first word is phileo. It's where we get our word for brotherly love. It's Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's a brotherly, familial type love. The second word is xenos. From, well, xenia from the word, Greek word uh, xenos. It's where we get our Greek word for stranger. 
So what does hospitality describe that in the New Testament? What is Jesus describing hospitality as here? It's loving strangers as if they were our family. It's loving those who are crippled, who are lame, who are broken, who are downtrodden, who are the outcasts, who are the oddballs, who are the people that when we see them coming, we quickly are like this way because we're afraid they might try to address us. And he says, look to them, treat them as family. Why? Why does the gospel call us to do that? Well, because in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, it says this. Remember that, but you were chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation set apart. Why? Because once you were not one who received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you were strangers, now you are family. So go and seek strangers and make them family. Once you were once that same condition, that same place, when you go on the streets and you see that beggar on the side of the road, you see that person lame, you see that special needs individual who is suffering through the pains of special needs, when you understand the families who are suffering alongside of them, when you understand the realities of the brokenness in this world, you begin to understand that there is nothing that separates any of us from the realities of this fallen world except the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. They need to become family members like we are. He's called us to that. That's why Ephesians 2, 12-13 says, Remember that you were at the same time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of the cross. You were once far off, but you've been brought near by the blood of the cross. You were once a stranger, but now you are a child of the living God. If you have begun to understand the nature and the hardness of your heart, you've seen the realities of that gospel at work in your lives, it will demonstrate it in a humility and a a thankfulness and a submission to the one who rules and reigns over all things. And that will demonstrate it in a desire to bring everyone that you can find to that message, to that hope. Listen to what Christine Pohl says in her book, Making Room, Recovering Hospitality as a Christian Tradition. She says this, Hospitality meant extending to strangers a quality of kindness usually reserved for friends and family. The focus, however, was on strangers in need, the lowly and abject, those who on first appearance seemed to have little to offer, Hospitality both participated in and anticipated God's hospitality. Christians offered hospitality in grateful response to God's God's generosity as an expression of welcome to Christ, who for your sake was a stranger. You hear what she was saying there? Christ became a stranger of heaven, that you might be called sons and daughters. And he said to you, who are you to pass judgment who are you to continue to foster and guard and to, and to gather all those around you who are just like you? No, but if the gospels at work in your life, you have seen yourselves no different than what our culture sees as the worst. You are one in desperate need. Understanding that, you're so happy to be invited to the table that when the, when the, when the host comes and says, hey, will you go out? Because I sent out invitations and they haven't come. Will you go out? And will you gather folks from the highways and the byways, the the crippled, the poor, the lame, and will you bring them in? You run out the door as fast as you can because you said, 
He invited me and He wants to invite more and I'm going to go find them because they have the same need I have. The same reality of their heart is the reality of my heart. Lord, send me. That's what Isaiah says. Lord, here I am. Send me. The message of Luke this morning of Jesus is that we need to recognize the hardness of our heart. We need to understand that there is a humility that should be taking shape in our lives. Is demonstrating itself in utter submission to Him, and that the expression of that should be demonstrated in the ways that we take this message to the world, not to those like us, but to those who are in desperate need, because we see all of us the same way, from the least of us to the greatest of us, as those desperately in need of this gospel. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, we bow before you this morning. I just feel incapable of communicating all that is set before us in your text this morning. I feel incapable to to see its expression in my own heart. But Lord, You are faithful. You are good. You are faithful to uphold us, to work in us, to challenge us and change us. And so, Lord, this morning we pray that You would instill in us and create in us a heart that cries, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply, To the cross I cling. Lord, work in our hearts this morning. Challenge us, Lord. Change us. Work in us for the glory of your name. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.